Hi, everyone. I'm Mark Savatelli, podcast host and president and CEO at NAOP. You're listening to the NAOP podcast, Inside CRE, featuring interviews with commercial real estate leaders who share industry and career insights. NAOP, the Commercial Real Estate Development Association, is the development industry's leading source for education, advocacy, and connections that drive your business forward. In today's episode, I have the privilege of speaking with Reva Gujan. Reva is a director at Rhodium Group and has almost two decades of professional experience as a geopolitical strategist. She is known for her ability to watch the map move and anticipate how deep structural forces, including U.S.-China competition, disruptive technologies, and the reorganization of global trade are forcing a rethink of corporate strategy and behavior. Reva, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Before I jump into some questions, I'd just like the audience to get to know you a little bit. So tell me, how did you get started in your field and why did you choose this as your profession? Oh, man, I got started in college when I was staying up late working on an essay and noticed that North Korea tested a nuclear device. And I was interning at the time at a company in sent an email saying, I think something big is happening, (laughs) which set off this huge red alert process. And, um, you know, a lot of good analysis came from that. And so it just threw me into this geopolitical work. And I was getting really frustrated with academia um, because there was so much happening in the world. So yeah, I got my degrees and I did all that, but I just wanted to be in the thick of it. So that's where I love to play is talking to companies who are making hard decisions, but keeping a foot in the policy world, seeing the interaction between these two and just asking really big think questions. With all the testing North Korea does these days, I'm sure that you're spending a lot of time uh, up at night and that's that fuel keeps getting fed and fed and fed. (laughs) they, They keep trying to attract attention, but nobody seems to be paying attention to North Korea these days, honestly. There's so much more. So what's the favorite thing uh, about what you do? What's your favorite thing about what you do? Oh, gosh. Well, if I were if I weren't able to ask really hard, ambitious questions, I think my soul would be crushed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the more ambitious the question, the better. And we are now I use the word existential because you know, I, I, that's not a throwaway word by any means. You mm-hmm. know, there, they, there is this convergence of forces that is creating so much angst in not just our kind of daily personal, you know, ecosystem, but then you look on a national level, then you look on an international level and things are getting real. And, you know, that's going to require a lot of creativity. It's going to require some big political fights, um, getting pushed to the brink. And, I just like to keep my my focus on what will come next. You know, I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, take a side in this. Um, I'm fiercely nonpartisan. Um, but what I do care about is anticipating what is likely to come and what are the alternate scenarios. Well, I'd love to pick your brain on that. So let, let's maybe talk a little bit about what's to come here. 
you know, there's a lot of big questions that are sitting out there right now around the economy, inflation, interest rates. And there are a lot of varying opinions out there. What should we make of that? What should commercial real estate professionals, uh, what guidance would you possibly have for them? One is to always try to keep apart the cyclical from the structural, right? And that's that's hard to do in this day's news flow, right? I mean, we're all hanging on the edges of our seat. What is the Fed going to do? How many basis points? What factor is influencing this? And it's, of course, we need to be caught up in it, especially when there's so much at stake with, with rates climbing the way they are. But uh, we'll be lost if we don't also look a little bit further out and see how is this current phase of the cycle that we're in feeding into something much bigger. Um, and so when we look at, you know, the inflation question, mm-hmm. which is the mega question, right? Um, in talking to clients over the past several years, um, I would often speak about the more structural part of that question of why we're likely to see more inflationary pressures. And this was at a time when Remember the term lower for longer? I mean, that was like, I think at NAP, I remember coming on stage, this was in 2019, and that was like the theme. Everybody was saying lower for longer. Well, isn't this great, right? Interest rates are so low, and there's just kind of this conditioning, right? Like we expect the current to just continue. We, we It's so easy to extrapolate. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to imagine alternate futures. But uh, I think this year, now everybody's kind of wrapped their heads around things like everybody now can talk about aging demographics in a way where they understand, okay, A leads to B. Now I'm seeing the effects. Oh, wow. No wonder the labor market is so tight. We're seeing it, right? And the the pandemic just kind of accelerated all those trends. Um, the energy transition too, like we're, we're just seeing the effects of it, right? The frequency of weather related incidents, the, just look at the billions of dollars that are going into reconstruction every year. There has to be new solutions to this, right? There need to be bridge solutions to this as well. Um, so, but that's, that's hard. That's expensive. And then geopolitical conflict. I mean, no matter where you look, it's expensive because we're talking about, taking these highly integrated trade relationships and breaking them apart, repackaging them, finding our partners in that mix, seeing who we can trust, who we don't trust, what are we going to restrict? What are we not going to restrict? It really tests um, this country's market-based kind of instinct in a big way when you have industrial policy really taking off and you have a very assertive um, kind of offensive and defensive posture and play in trade. Um, All of those are heavily leaning on the inflationary side. One thing that I think is just less appreciated is the China story and its structural slowdown Mm -hmm. and the impact that has on the world, which is more disinflationary. So something to keep an eye on for the longer term. Well, I want to actually talk further about that. I mean, I know your background is is a lot with China and, you know, this has really been your major study area. And of course, China, for commercial real estate has such a big impact, particularly with all the trade coming into the warehouses mm-hmm. that you know we have throughout the country, particularly in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And China's been a major story throughout the pandemic. So how does China's economic condition 
and the end of their COVID zero policy, what impact does that have on U.S. and Canadian markets? Well, um, near term and long term, two things to bear in mind. One, cyclically, what are we looking at here? Um, for 2023, China has ended its zero COVID policy very abruptly. Um, there's, it's going to be really bumpy, you know, because obviously a lot of people are going to be infected. There's, we just are getting through Lunar New Year and we could see another big wave. We could see retrenchment in policy, but still there is going to be some level of a rebound, right? So we, we need to bear in mind, um, you know, how, what exactly is going to be um, that impact as there's, there's just more economic insecurity in China. Does that result in capital flight as things open up, people mm. can travel again, right? That leads to more outbound investment, just kind of organically. And property is always a place to look um, yeah. for that. So, so that is going to be a really interesting trend. At Rhodium Group, we track FDI um, transactions over time and, and use that as a prism to understand the U.S.-China relationship. So I'm really eager to see what this year will bring now that uh, China's opened up. Well, speaking of the opening up, <clears throat> one area where they really seem to have opened their focus is Taiwan. And, you know, they're saber rattling over Taiwan. Do you see this as adding, you know, further instability to world markets and particularly to supply chains? Or is this just kind of a little bit of a speed bump in the road? Oh, gosh, it's not a it's not a speed bump. Um, it's it's this is a big challenge, right? For, for China, Taiwan is an unfinished chapter in its history. Um, you know, there was a big fight between the nationalists and the communists, the communists won. Um, and the U.S. during the Cold War recognized Beijing as the seat of the Chinese government. Right. But over that time since, you know, Taiwan has developed into this amazing power. Right. It's a technological powerhouse. The vast majority of the semiconductors that goes into everything we use every day, it's made in Taiwan. And so that sets up a really formidable dynamic, right? Because on the one hand, um, Beijing sets out its plans to peacefully reunify with Taiwan. Um, it hasn't worked through economic engagement. You yeah. have a new generation of Taiwanese people who don't identify with the mainland, who see themselves as Taiwanese. Um, so the peaceful part of that, not working. Um, so increasingly, so you've seen China lean more toward more toward military coercion tactics. And this is where things get interesting because the U.S., especially in seeing what Russia has done in Ukraine, has seen now this urgency to get Taiwan ready, like build up its defense, what's called porcupine defense, essentially. Taiwan's already really difficult to invade, but it needs specific weaponry to make it really, really, really difficult to invade and occupy. Um, so yeah, the US has approved $10 billion in foreign military funding um, for Taiwan to receive more advanced weaponry over a number of years. Think about that from Beijing's perspective, if this is unfinished history, um, the scenario that I worry about is a quarantine scenario where it's not you wake up tomorrow and Chinese troops are invading Taiwan. That's a huge high cost scenario. Um, I don't think that's the most likely. It's more of 
The U.S. is sending shipments to Taiwan. Beijing sees a need to stop that. So it's more of a legal argument that Beijing asserts to say mm -hmm. we're interdict interdicting these weapons shipments. And for anything coming into Taiwan, it has to go through mainland authorities. That puts the U.S., Japan, others on the spot to say, what are you going to do now? Who are you going to recognize? Um, and that can escalate very quickly. So you you mentioned Ukraine a little bit. And, you know, when we look at the situation in Ukraine, you know, there have been a lot of sanctions on the Russians. Mm -hmm. You know, they, their economy has been devastated. Do you feel that the Chinese may look at this and say, you know, is this enough to disincentivize them from possibly looking to reunify with Taiwan? Or do they look at this and say, okay, it has, you know, it, it, we can manage? Uh, manage, no. <laughs> there's, there's no escaping China's dependency on the U.S. dollar. Its economy just cannot run without it. Um, it has tried to internationalize its own currency, the renminbi. Um, that's about 3% of transactions worldwide now. I mean, it's just not, it's barely kind of moving the needle. Uh, so, so no, I mean, China is, is extremely vulnerable. It, it understands that. Uh, does it seeing what happened to Russia disincentivize it? Um, uh, Sure. I mean, it gives a ton of pause. Right. But that scenario that I just described in terms of asserting legal claims, especially if Beijing concludes a couple things. One, um, is the U.S. sufficiently distracted to where it would try to avoid a kinetic conflict? Right. So we would need to watch that. Two, the U.S. is on a, a very escalatory campaign right now uh, in targeting technology, which is a huge part of this competition between the U.S. and China. And there is a big spectrum there where the U.S. can tighten those controls to the point where China can get into a very existential position. If the U.S. corners China to such a degree that it feels like it needs to lean on a cross-strait a cross crisis in order to negotiate a new understanding with the U.S., that is something to watch. I see those two things in parallel. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to shift it back a little bit here to the U.S. for a minute. Um, you know, we hear a lot and have heard a lot, particularly throughout this whole conversation about supply chain over the past year or so about reshoring, nearshoring. And, you know, you've mentioned in the past, uh, you know, I, I believe uh, it was a quote for actually for someone from Taiwan that, you know, globalism is dead. Uh, almost dead. Almost dead. Yes. Thank you. Um do you see a real weight in this? Do you, this reshoring, nearshoring trend? Uh, you know, and, and what role do you think politics is playing in this decision to maybe bring stuff back to the U.S.? Oh, it's huge. I mean, supply chain resilience is the the phrase of the I don't know, not even just the year, right? But you just see this atop everything under the national security umbrella, and especially given the experience we've had with the pandemic there's a lot that gets packaged under supply chain resilience. So what does that mean in practice? Well, um, one, politically, you're, you're seeing government um, trying to create incentives for reshoring and friendshoring. So that's coming through an industrial policy, right? Um, also through very strict provisions, for example, through the Inflation Reduction Act, um, provisions that basically say, you know, you have to have finished assembly of electric vehicles in the in North America and no components can come from China by 2024. Things like that, that are really, really strict. 
Um, so, so yeah, politically there's like this steerage happening mm -hmm. for sure. Um, but for companies, you know, they're, the timeline is essential. Everybody knows you can't just pick up and go. And, you know, I mean, China was still, has been a very efficient production base. It's been losing lower end manufacturing to Southeast Asian countries, in particular Mexico, um, due to wage growth. Um, but, you know, to whole scale shift production is really hard. And, it, you know, there are other countries have their problems too, yeah. right? I mean, Vietnam's political system can be extremely opaque. India has its own struggles, depending on which state you're in. It can be, it can be really, really tough. Um, Mexico has huge security issues, right? Central America. So, frontiering as a concept makes sense politically. I think practically, it's just it's 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 hard to implement, and it's going to take time. Do you think this trend towards reshoring will have a real impact on international trade over time? Or do you see this more as, you know, a little bit of a blip, so to speak? No, I, I don't see it as a blip, right? Because um, one, the geopolitical frictions between the U.S. and China are very deeply rooted and we're in an escalatory phase. And so that's going to continue to climb. That's going to continue to put pressure on companies of what's their next move, right? Where do they deploy their CapEx next? Um, so what I think we'll see is more regionalization overall in supply chains. That still means a lot of trade activity, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't mean trade stops. Um, it's just a lot of movement around and less efficient naturally. Um, but how do you truly define resilience? Is it just reshoring everything to the United States? Obviously not, right? Like that's not going to be true for every industry um, or competitive for every industry, but figuring out what's the constellation of, you know, partners and friends that you can put together and craft a, a more resilient supply chain strategy, that that's going to take some time. So we talked a little bit here about <clears throat> reshoring and industrial, but let's shift to the other part of commercial real estate that a lot of our members like to talk about, which is office. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is an interesting time for office right now and not just in the U.S., but in other areas around the world, you know, we've really seen this widespread shift to remote work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do you think that that has the opportunity to affect the office market, you know, worldwide, maybe a little bit here when we're talking about North America uh, and the future of the workforce in general? Yeah, it's interesting when you look at this, like thread the needle, right? So from when you look at the aging demographics trend, right? and how we have a very tight labor market right now, right? Which basically gives the worker more power, right? Bargaining power. And in that kind of climate, what does that mean then for corporates and workers? And, you know, when it comes to terms um, for work, do you come to the office? Do you need to relocate? Um there were always huge expectations um, that you would have to relocate to wherever headquarters was, depending, of course, on what field you're in. Um, but now there's more leverage that the worker has to say, you know what, I've got young kids. I need to stay near my family so that, I, you know, grandparents can be in the picture and help take care of them. So, yeah, I will travel to headquarters and maybe companies spend more money on retreats, right? Where there's mm -hmm. actually good quality time to make up for all that, you know, not being together every day, but 
prioritizing family life. I don't think that's going away, right? That's not a blip from the pandemic. Yep. Um, so what do you do with all this extra office space? You know better than me, all the discussions around adapting to residential in some cases. Um, it'll be really interesting to see what can be retrofitted given you know new industrial areas that are mm -hmm. emerging. Um, there is also, I, I think the, the economist um, talked about this recently, about this trend of luxury office space. Um, and, you know, if you basically are spending less because you you don't have everybody coming to work in the office anymore, then you can afford maybe more posh spaces, right? With yoga studios and I don't know, five-star chefs. It is a big trend. Like yeah. The amenitization right? of office exactly. has been an increasing trend uh, really over the past couple of years with the pandemic certainly uh, yeah. put the anvil on the accelerator, so to speak. Yeah. So it's all about what are companies going to do to lure workers into the office with the understanding that you're probably not going to get your employees in five days a week anyway. Um, and, you know, kind of shifting to more quality team time through things like retreats. So, so yeah, it's, it's going to be tough. So we've seen some demographic you know, changes over the years. And, you know, we we continue to see as a continuing labor and workforce shortage in commercial real estate. And economists and demographers expect that that shortage of workers has potential to continue for some time. What are your assessments of this trend? And do you think that there's anything that commercial real estate can do to overcome that? To overcome the shortage of workers? Well, uh, there are different aspects, of course, to... Uh, your sector, right? So when it comes to new property development, right, of uh, labor shortages can be seen, of course, in areas like construction. Um, and that's hard uh, to, to make up those gaps when our inbound flow of foreign workers drops. And we saw a big drop from the 2016 to 2020 period in particular. Um, so now that's starting to rebound in a very positive way, which is good, but um, immigration reform is long overdue. Um, this is a time when countries, advanced economies, everybody's experiencing this aging demographics trend, right? Everybody's dealing with shortages of workers, both low skilled and highly skilled. And, you know, when it comes to the, the talent competition for highly skilled, you're going to see immigration policies adapt to try to attract those workers for low-skilled um, jobs as well, um, especially those that are very labor-intensive. And that's not just about the labor supply, right? That's about creating a broader consumer base over time as well, which is critical. Um, so all of this kind of, all roads still seem to converge on what are we doing about immigration reform um, and, and how can this be rationalized? So looking into the future here, as we begin to wrap this up, you know, a lot of commercial real estate developers, they've got to look far into the future. You know, they're not buying a plot of dirt now to develop it mm -hmm. tomorrow. In looking at the current landscape of the whole geopolitical environment, what is something you think right now that commercial real estate developers ought to be mindful of that potentially be coming down the pike that could have an impact on the real estate industry? Uh, well, a big theme that we've been discussing is uh, the the China slowdown story. I think, like we talked about earlier, right? Aging demographics, people are becoming way more familiar with, okay, I can see the impact now, right? I can see the impact of um, that labor shortages are having and 
how office space is utilized and all these different things. What is less recognized is that China's low growth stasis um, is here to stay for a while. Uh, and so, so those high growth days where China would lift all boats and you know drive 30 to 40 percent of global growth, um, we're in a totally different era now as China's basically out of options, you know, when it looks at its its labor pool on the demographic front, um, on the capital front, um, this investment led uh, growth process, uh, it's it's basically reaching its end. Um, and uh, the debt is just kind of over, to, it's consuming the economy at this point. Um, and you can see it in the productivity levels, right? So if you have, if the solution is that the state has the answers of how to fix these problems. And so therefore the state intervenes more heavily. Most likely, as we've seen throughout history, your productivity is not going to go up. It's going to go down. Mm -hmm. And China's the, the real case study there. So I think preparing for that and understanding that economic models have not caught up to this reality. Everybody's still kind of going on old assumptions of how much China can realistically grow. Um, there's going to be a big correction coming. Um, and so that is going to set off a whole kind of cascade of recalculations and, and growth projections overall. So we've talked about a lot today, and that's kind of a heavy way to, to, to perhaps end it. But if we had to sum up and say, what would probably be the biggest takeaway that you think our members uh, ought to have based on what we've talked about today, what would that be? Uh, well, one is no one can claim to have certainty, certainly not I, about what the future holds. Um, but it's funny, you know, humans don't manage cognitive dissonance well at all, right? We don't like thinking about alternate futures. It doesn't come naturally to us. I personally love it. Um, but try to train your brain as much as you can to think about where am I now? What are the present conditions? And as you said, you have to look far out, right? You, it's a three-year, five-year time frame. Um, the world can shift a lot over the life cycle of a development. And given all these factors we've been talking about, you know, the China factor, geopolitical competition, demographics, technology, labor, all these different things coming together, um, you have to get creative in thinking about alternative futures. That requires imagination. Sounds like a lot of Newtonian calculus to me. So, Reva, I want to thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation and know our listeners will value your insight. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to Inside CRE with your host, Mark Savatelli. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and be sure to subscribe. That's all for this episode. We'll talk with you again soon.